0: Well, again, I do want to welcome you, say thank you for worshiping with us. And this time, I want to encourage you to grab your Bibles and open it or uh, turn your electronic device on to the book of Haggai chapter 2. Uh, this is a series that we started last week called The Time is Now. And uh, in case you're having trouble finding Haggai, I completely understand. In the Old Testament, go to the last book, that's Malachi. And then just back up a couple. You'll go Malachi, then come to Zechariah, then Haggai is right there. If you reach Zephaniah, you've gone a little too far. So uh, this is a small book, but it is an incredibly applicable book to 2018. I want to remind those who were here last week, or even give kind of a recap, if you weren't able to worship with us last week of where we started, the book of Haggai, it takes place about 86 years after uh, the 70-year the captivity, and then the Israelites are released by Cyrus, uh, the Persian, and then they start rebuilding the temple, but they stop working for about 16 years at the opening of our book here, Haggai. And The reason that Israel said they had stopped working is that the time wasn't right. But God said, no, no, it's not that the timing's not right. It's your priorities weren't right. Uh, Life was all about them, not about God. And we honestly saw how easy it is for you and I to fall into the exact same pattern where life can be all about us rather than about God. And so this morning as we open here in chapter 2, We're going to see how the date is very specific and and important, but we're going to see three actions that God takes, and then a promise that he gives the nation of Israel. But furthermore, we want to see how God takes the same three actions for us, and how the promise he gives, he also gives to us. This morning's one big thing is this, that obedience may not always be easy, but it will always result... In blessings, so let's look at it together. Haggai chapter two. We're going to start in verse one, and if you can, would you stand to honor the reading of God's word? It says in the seventh month, in the one and twentieth day of the month, came the word of the Lord by the prophet Haggai, saying, "Speak now to Zerubbabel the son of Shieldiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Josedech, the high priest, and to the residue of the people, saying." Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord. And be strong, O Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest. And be strong, all ye people of the land, saith the Lord. And work, for I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when ye came out of Egypt, so my spirit remaineth among you. Fear ye not. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. This is the reading of God's Word. Would you pray with me? Fathers, we begin this morning to study your Word. Again, we ask, Father, that your Spirit would be our teacher to guide us into all truth. Give us ears to hear and hearts to receive the truth from your Word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Again, the one big thing is this, that obedience... May not always be easy, but it will always result in blessing. So, what are the three actions that God takes in this chapter that we see? Well, the first one that we see is this that God calls out their sin. Chapter 2 opens approximately one month after Israel had begun to rebuild this second temple, the one known as the Temple of Zerubbabel. All right, the date here in the opening of the chapter is very significant for the nation of Israel. Because in Israel's time, God gave them three specific feasts that they were to observe every single year. And one of the feasts is known as the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. It's recorded in the book of Leviticus. Now, what this feast was about was it was to remind Israel of how God had taken care of the nation for 40 years while it wandered through the wilderness. And so this date here is towards the tail end of that feast that Haggai is giving this message. And he is giving this message to remind the people of Israel of why they find themselves in the position they are finding themselves in. You see, Israel, back in Moses' day, they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness because they didn't have faith and trust in God. And the people here in Haggai, they were not building the temple because they didn't have faith and trust in God. See, they had allowed these agitators to divide them and to distract them. These people were smearing the the leadership of Israel and they were trying to frighten the people of Israel to keep them from being obedient to God And, and it absolutely worked. Not because these people were bigger or stronger than Israel, but because Israel was more afraid of them than they trusted in God. And that is the reason of their disobedience, because their fear of man was greater than their faith in God. But the question that we have to ask is this Are we just as guilty? Are there things that God has called us to do, but because somebody was a negative Nelly, because somebody told us it couldn't be done, because somebody tried to stop us from doing it, did we go, Oh, well, I can't do it? See, God is calling out the sin of disobedience. In the lives of Israel. He does it in the first three chapters. Or first three verses, excuse me. Chapter two. Look there in verse three specifically. God asks a few questions. He says, who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? This is a reference to Solomon's temple. He is asking, how many of you remember what Solomon's temple looked like? Now there were some who remembered the, the glory of Solomon's temple. So then he asks a second question. And how do you see it now? How do you see this second temple, this uh, Zerubbabel's temple? See, that temple was smaller than Solomon's temple. To the people, it wasn't as grand or as glorious, which leads him to ask the third question. Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? Nothing. See, if we go into the book of Ezra, what we find is this, that those who remembered Solomon's temple, they stood kind of at a distance looking at this new temple and they were actually crying because this new temple wasn't as big and grand as the first temple. And they thought, oh, well, you know, God's not in it and God doesn't love us and God's forgotten us and all these things that they're doing. And God's going, listen, the God of Solomon's temple... The God who led you out of Egypt is the same God who is with you calling you to rebuild this temple now. The problem was this. They didn't trust God. They judged on outer circumstances rather than an internal steadfast faith in God. And so God is calling them out on it. As we said last week, when God speaks, the only appropriate response is prompt obedience. Even delayed obedience is disobedience. For when God speaks, church, we must act. We must step out in faith, though we may not see every step uh, along the way. We know the God who is calling us. And so the question is, not do we trust in what we see, not do we trust in what we can do, but do we trust the God who is calling us to do it? And so God is calling out Israel's sin because they didn't believe him. They had a greater fear of man than a faith in God. But not only does God call out their sin, but the second thing, the second action we see God take is this, that God calls them to hope. God tells the king of Israel, that's Zerubbabel, and the high priest Joshua, he says, be strong. Now again, this is a very important phrase here because it was first given to Moses when it was time to move on and leave Egypt and venture towards the promised land. God told Moses, be strong. Then, as Joshua was becoming the second leader of the nation of Israel, three times in Joshua 1 we see God say, be strong and very courageous. In fact, God takes it a step further with Joshua. He says, as I was with Moses, so will I be with you. If you do, if you obey me, if you keep my commands, nobody will be able to stand before you. Nobody will be able to stop you. And so here for a third time God is now telling the nation of Israel be strong. He is not calling them to have strength in themselves. He's not saying be confident in your abilities. Rather he is saying be strong because look at the end of verse 4. He says for I am with you saith the Lord of hosts. How many of you know that If God is calling you to it, then the devil cannot stop it. Why why, why are we so afraid? Because somebody said we couldn't do it. Because somebody didn't think it was a good idea. If God is for us, what does Paul say? Then who can be against us? Now this doesn't give us license to go and act a fool. Okay, We don't want to do our will and then when it blows up on us, blame God. But what God has called us to, God expects us to do it. And he expects us to do it now. He's calling them to to hope here. Because he is with them. See, here's a, a beautiful message. Despite Israel's sin, God had not given up on Israel. Does that encourage anybody? Have you ever felt like a failure? Ever felt like, you know, maybe at one time I could have done something and God could have used me, but I've just messed it up too bad. You ever felt that way? You ever had the devil whisper in your voice, you know, God probably could have loved you till you did that. God probably could have used you, but then you did that. Yet what we see here unequivocally is this. Despite Israel's sin, God had not given up on them yet. Yes, we're sinful. We, we fail God every single day. In fact, about in 1 John 1.8, would put it this way. If any man says he doesn't have sin, he is a liar, for the truth is not in him. We are not doubting that we are sinful. We are not saying that God somehow needs us. What we are proclaiming is the truth of Scripture, that God loves us and pursues us with His grace in spite of our sinfulness. That though we have nothing to offer God, he still loves us and desires us. He has left you here for a reason. God is reminding Israel and he is reminding us that yes, while our sin is great, God's grace is greater. I love the end of Romans chapter 5 verse 20. It says, where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. God's grace is bigger Than our sin. It means that no one here has sinned so tragically. That the grace of God cannot save you. Cleanse you. And ultimately forgive you. That God has you here for a reason. Now let's be very clear here. This does not mean that we can take our sin lightly. It does not mean that we can continuously run and rebel against God. But it does mean that God in His love pursues us with His grace that we might be forgiven and saved. That our life would ultimately bring Him glory as He builds His church and His kingdom. You see, our hope, our strength and our confidence is not in us. It is not in our abilities. It is in who God is. Our hope and our strength come from God. I will lift mine eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. As that hymn says, though Satan should buffet, those trials should come. Let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. It is well, it is well, it is well with my soul. If you have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, that is your song. That is your anthem. Though our sin is great, it is well with our soul because of the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm here to tell you this morning, I'm not counting on getting to heaven because of who I am. I'm not counting on getting to heaven because of what I do. My hope and my rest is in what Jesus did for me. That's why we sing, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. See, God's calling you to hope. And this is a message that the world needs. There is anger, bitterness, envy, division, jealousy. There's racism, sexism, all these things that are going on in our world. And God is calling you and I as Christians to send forth and to loudly proclaim the message of hope that is found in the gospel. That though our sin is great, God's grace is greater. But how can we have that hope? Well, that's answered in the third point this morning. And that is this, that God has called on Israel to repent. Although we don't see the word repent in this verse, we see the action of repentance there in verse 4. Again, look with me. Chapter 2, verse 4. says, yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord. And be strong, O Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest. And be strong, all ye people of the land, saith the Lord. And work. It is that word which gives us the understanding of repentance here. We saw chapter 1 that Israel had been sinning by not obeying what God had told them to do. God had already told them build the temple. He had already moved in the heart of a Gentile leader to set them free and to pay for the project. But they cared more about themselves than they cared about God. However, in the end of chapter 1, we see God had moved in the hearts and the minds of the leaders and of the people of Israel. And God is telling them here in chapter 2, verse 4, If you are genuinely remorseful for what you have done, then show it by doing what I told you to do in the first place. And this is the essence of repentance. What we need to see this morning is there's a difference between being sorry and being repentant. See, being sorry is an emotion that we feel because we have gotten caught and because we are experiencing consequences. It's like getting caught with your hand in the cookie jar and then getting punished with it. But hate, but repentance is a hatred that we did the sin in the first place. And it is seeking God's help not to continuously go back there over and over and over. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 7. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. See, simply being sorry for something isn't enough. Simply having a head knowledge that what you said, what you did, what you thought isn't enough. Because if all I do is acknowledge that what I did was wrong, but I do not take any steps to remedy that action, then I am sorry, but I'm not repentant. When we find ourselves continuously struggling with the same sin over and over and over, we must genuinely question, am I being sorrowful, am I being remorseful, or am I being repentant? Because repentance calls us to hate our sin. It calls us to understand that that attitude, that action, those words, are the very reason that Jesus came to this earth. That the sinless one died for the sinful ones. Repentance causes me to hate my sin. Because it caused the pain and the shame, and the grief, and the death of Jesus Christ. I would submit to you this morning that the vast majority of Christians and churches, the reason that they are not growing spiritually is not because God does not desire to use them. It's not because God won't use them. It's because they love their sin more than they love the Savior. And until we come to hate our sin, we have not repented. Repentance is so important that Jesus says in Luke 13, 3, that unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Put it simply, we cannot say that we love Jesus while continuously running willfully into our own sin. We must repudiate it. And we must understand that the answer for our sin is the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And so we've seen God's three actions. We've seen that He calls out their sin. He has called them to hope. He has called them to repent. And when they repent, here is the great promise that God gives. Number four says, He promises His presence. If Israel would simply repent of their sin, God said, just like I was with your fathers when I led them out of Egypt, so am I gonna be with you. And the same promise that God made to them, God is making to you and I today. See, when you repent of your sin and you become a child of God, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. The, The biblical term is he indwells you. And the Holy Spirit, He comforts you. He encourages you. He convicts us of our sin. He guides us to remember what Jesus has taught. And it means this, that if I am a child of God, God is with me every day in every situation. And when my life is over, He will lead me into the eternal presence of God forever. Evidence of of repentance is the presence of God in our lives. When we feel the conviction of our sin, when churches spend time in prayer confessing sin, when believers spend time in accountability relationships, it is evidence of God's presence in that body. We must get past the worldly view of church that judges success by buildings, bodies, and budgets. We must look at success from God's perspective, which is not the three B's, but rather it is faithfulness and obedience to God, regardless of our circumstances. It's easy to be like Israel in chapter one now, isn't it? It's easy just to go about our life. It's easy to make decisions that we think are in our best interest, that make us happy. In many churches, people don't want to talk about sin. They don't want to talk about sin and accountability because they don't want to deal with their own sin. In fact, I would submit to you that one of the most common reasons churches don't practice church discipline as outlined in Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5 is is this. They will say something along the lines of, well, we all struggle with something and it's not my place to judge. Can I just lay it out for you real quick that is the absolute lamest excuse for sin I've ever heard in my life you're not judging somebody if you are lovingly going hey you know what what you did that was sin according to God you're not judging somebody if you go up and say you know the way you talk to that person that's just not right you need to go get right with them you are not judging a person when you go, you know that attitude you have? Man, it doesn't honor God. You're not judging them, you're loving them. My guess here, every parent, if they saw a kid run out into the middle of Scruggs Road as soon as service was over, you would not sit back and go, well, we all got you know struggles of our own, so I'm just going to let little Johnny or Susie figure out that they shouldn't play in the road. You would break your neck to get them out of harm's way. So why is it, church, that we have a problem with holding one another accountable? God disciplines those he loves. Judgment would be me walking up and going, you know what, that David character, he's lost. And that hunter character, well, he's saved. That's judgment, that's God's job. But my job and your job as a Christian is to be a fruit inspector. And sometimes in love, we got to go up to somebody and go, you know what? You got some rotten fruit. It's time to repent of it. How can I pray with you and for you? It's not pointing a finger at them. It's coming alongside of them and going, listen, this isn't right. Let's other become who God has called us to be if you really want to grow in your relationship with Christ you need three intentional times of study I'm not going to go any further than this other than say I I want to invite you here on Wednesday night because we're going to dive into this deep alright but you want to really grow in your walk with God three intentional times of study corporate worship so you got one Sunday school small group. Hopefully you got that. If not, there are classes that meet all over this building. They start 945 every single Sunday. If you're not sure which one's right for you, please let me know. We'll help you find it. Number three, you need a small discipleship group. A group of three to five believers of the same sex. So men with men, women with women. And you're going to meet every week for the purpose of Bible study, Prayer and holding one another accountable. Because if you try to live this life on your own, your sin nature will wreak havoc. That's why when, when Jesus told that parable of that one lost sheep going astray, it's why the shepherd went after it. Because that's where trouble lands. So we have to understand what God is calling us to. Scripture is full of exhortations to hold one another accountable. fact of the matter, the chapter that we always read as we partake of the Lord's Supper, these are the words that we often study. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks condemnation on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Paul says we got to judge ourselves and we got to hold one another accountable. Later on in the New Testament, Paul would write this in the book of Galatians chapter 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Both of these verses have the exact same thrust on it. And that is this, that we must hold one another accountable for living a godly life and having godly words and having godly attitudes if we're going to please him who bought us with his blood. But not only is accountability necessary for us, but we have to remember that the world is watching. And that many people are making up their minds about what they believe about God by listening and watching those who call themselves Christians. I know it's not fun having somebody point it out to you. One would think I've grown accustomed to hearing, Justin, you're wrong. After all, I've been married for almost 14 years. But I don't like it any more than you do. I don't like it when somebody challenges me. But if they're right, then it's on me to thank them. Because God is using them for his glory and for my good. If we're going to grow, church, we've got to love Jesus more than we love our sin. Which means we have to let people in and inspect our fruit trees. And when they find a disease, we need to allow them to call it out so that God's word can do the work of producing healthy fruit. See, all of this matters because we want, we need God's presence in our life and in the life of a church. And we have to know that God will only put up with our sin for so long before his judgment will fall. And I assure you, when God's judgment falls, there's a lot of things to describe it. Grace will not be one of those words. I'm often reminded of what God said to the church at Sardis in Revelation chapter 3, He said, you have a reputation that you're alive, but I tell you that you're dead. Therefore, repent. And if you will not repent, I will come upon you as a thief in the night. You know, in this day and age, it's so easy for a church to appear alive. We could have so many programs that we could have you here every single day of the week for two, four hours at a time. But that doesn't mean it's alive. How do we know that a church is alive? When people are repenting of their sin and trusting Jesus Christ, when people are following through in baptism, when people are being obedient and becoming members of the local body, when Christians are growing in their walk with God and they're loving God and they're loving one another more. Those are the signs of an alive church. Not 500 people. God gave this church an option. He said, repent. But if you won't, I'm gonna come. I don't come as a thief in the night. And I would submit to you this morning that that is the exact thing that God is saying to churches all across this world today. I would submit to you that if you are here and you have never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that's exactly what He is saying to you today. You may think that you're alive. You may think that you got the world by the tail and everything is going great, but God, who we will stand before and give an account for, He is saying, you may think you're alive, and I'm going to tell you right now, you're dead in your sin. Therefore, repent. Turn away from your sin and turn in faith to the Savior. But because He is a loving, merciful, gracious God, He is giving you an opportunity. He says what he desires for you to do. But he also will tell you the consequences of not doing it. And so the choice becomes ours. Will we take what we have heard and respond? Or will we just go through the motions? So how can we apply these two verses? I'd like to just recommend two things very quickly. First, Acknowledge the sin and repent of it. For some of you, you your sin is you have been rejecting the grace of God. You're, you are trusting who you are and what you've done. Your good works to get you into heaven. And I'm here to tell you that that is a dead end road. The only way that we can be saved is by the grace of God through faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 would tell us. For some... The sin is words, actions, or attitudes that don't glorify God, that tear others down. The answer in either case is the exact same. We must acknowledge it. We must turn from it. We can't pretend that we're right with God when we're not. We can't pretend that it's not there because it is there. But acknowledgement is only the first step. See, acknowledging our sin is what the Bible calls confession. To confess means to agree with God that what we are saying, doing, or thinking is wrong. But that's only a head knowledge. That will not save a person. What saves is when we agree with God that we are wrong, and we turn from our sin, and instead we place all of our faith, our trust, and our hope in that sacrifice of Jesus Christ on that cross as the only way that we can be saved, that's repentance. That is what brings salvation. We don't just want to be sorry that we got caught or that we're suffering the consequences for it. God wants us to see that it was wrong in the first place. He wants us to stop making excuses for what we did. He wants us to hate our sin because we love him so much and to acknowledge that our sin caused his death which will hopefully lead to the second point of application and is this to be obedient James 1.22 says be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves you know in American Christianity it's very easy to be deceived because in American Christianity we have convinced ourselves that going to a building one hour a week singing some songs, giving some money, maybe serving every now and then, and hearing a sermon is all that God requires. If that's your idea of salvation, then Scripture would say that you're deceived. Because when all we do is listen, but it doesn't change our hearts, it doesn't change what we do, then it's like we never heard it in the first place. And we are still in our our sin and we are still lost. God was calling on Israel, rebuild my temple. What's he calling you to obey him in today? Is he calling you to obey him and trusting in him and him alone for salvation? Do you need to be obedient and following the example of baptism? Do you need to be obedient to the Scripture to become a member of this local body of believers? Do you need to be obedient by using the gifts that God has given you for His glory and the building up of this church? Do you need to be obedient and get into these small group Bible studies called Sunday School? Do you need to be obedient by getting into a relationship with three to five believers who will hold you accountable whatever God has said to us, if we love Him the way that we're supposed to, we're going to respond. But if we do not respond, then let us put away from ourselves this silly notion that we love Him because our actions betray our words. For what God has revealed, God expects us to do. So however we need to respond, let's take these next few minutes. So we're going to sing another song. Let's take these next few minutes and let's respond to God. Would you stand with me as we're going to pray together? Father, as we close out another worship service, we count it a joy and a privilege to have come into your house and to studied your word. And Father, undoubtedly it creates some very uncomfortable moments. Because the word of God lays our heart and our mind and our life open to bear. And it reveals the truth of who we are and who we are trusting. But Father, let us see that as something for your glory and for our good. For many are sitting in churches just like this all across uh, the world today and they are are deceived into believing that they are a child of God when in fact they're not. And Father, I, I pray it's not the case, but it may very well be the case even here this morning that we have fallen into this belief that just because we walked an aisle or said a prayer that we are somehow saved. Yet, Father, let us see that that is a works-based theology because that is putting it on what I did, not in resting and trusting in the grace of Jesus Christ. But, God, those that you have saved, you have also called to obey you and to grow in that faith. So, Father, we pray that you would reveal the truth where we are with you today. And that God, if we're not right, that we would simply cry out in faith to you today that we might be saved. But God, may not only the sinners be challenged, but may the saints also be challenged. Because though we have been declared not guilty by that blood of Jesus, there is still a sin nature inside of us that wars against us every single day. And there are times that we obey that sin nature rather than our new nature. Father, let us not pretend that it doesn't exist, but let us simply confess and turn from it and to seek your help and to seek the accountability of brothers and sisters that we would live in a way that glorifies you and draws the loss to yourself. So Father, we give this time to you move in the hearts and lives of your people we pray in jesus name amen we're going to sing the song of invitation oh come to the altar it's one that you're very familiar with if you need to take care of some business with god this is the time so as we sing you come